Well, y'all can go ahead and be seated. Been standing for some time now. That uh, is a feast of a gospel reading for us. But it is indeed a feast, isn't it? It's an incredible reading that uh, is one of my favorites. Uh, speaking of feasting, um, you all know this, but one of, one of the, the traditional and primary ways that uh, Christians observe Lent, you see this all across the world and all throughout history, is uh, through the act of uh, fasting. Fasting people currently all over the world are, are abstaining from taking food uh, in an effort to remind themselves of the ways that God actually feeds us and satisfies our desires even more than we can for ourselves. And uh, what's striking to me about this practice is, again, you, you read this all throughout the scriptures and throughout the tradition, and typically fasting is abstaining from food, but not abstaining from water. There are um, obvious exceptions to this. Uh, I think of Moses going up on Mount Sinai, it says in the, in the text that he, he abstained from eating food and water, but he also was in the living presence of God, swallowed up in fire and cloud. So that seems sort of fitting. But for, for most of us Christians, to fast means to abstain from food and not from, from water. And this is interesting to me because it's as if all of the tradition has known that giving up water would, would in fact be too much for us. That is, the, the results of it would be too acutely felt, and it would be not edifying, edifying. It, would, it would actually be dangerous. Uh, I, I don't know exactly. I think it's the human body can go something like three days without water. We're not made to do it. And so this all makes me wonder, St. Saint Augustine the Great, uh, theologian from the 4th century, uh, typically defined humanity, he was famous for this, typically defined humanity in terms of our desire or our longing. Even at times he, he would specify it, our hunger. To be human is to hunger after things, to long for things. But maybe upon further reflection the truer or more foundational condition for human beings is actually not that we hunger, but maybe it's that we thirst. We are all, I think, honest, we're honest with ourselves, we are a thirsty people. We're all radically dependent in so many ways, parched, uh, not simply longing for something to come, but in each and every day, completely dependent, thirsty for something other than ourselves. And we see this at play in both of our readings uh, so obviously. The, the passage from Exodus is perhaps a, the, um, the most stark example of this sort of condition of thirst. You remember the larger story in Exodus. God has redeemed all of his people out of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery. He has promised them that he will give them a, a, a promised land, a place that they might call home where they can flourish and grow, become a people and a kingdom. And in giving them this promise, he gives them... This is what Augustine was getting at. Something to long for. Something for their hearts to yearn for. But if you pay close attention to our reading, you see that is not the desire that drives the Israelites, is it? Not today. The condition that they face is far more immediate and acute. It's that they're thirsty. It's been noted by commentators, theologians, that there is only one way to the promised land. This is meant literally, pure geography, but also 
spiritually, there's one way to the promised land, and it's through the desert. They're longing for water. They long for a place to call home, but they are thirsty to be satisfied. So you see, it's not just that we long for the fulfillment, all of us, of God's promises, the coming kingdom. It's that we all long each and every day we thirst for something deeper. And this fact is we see it shook the Israelites to the core. It made them doubt God. And in fact, made some of them say, can we just go back to Egypt? But of course, that's not what happens. You see, we all long, we all thirst for something in each and every day. And it's not just this figure of Exodus that shows us this. I think our gospel reading, we encounter this as well. It's an amazingly detailed narrative. Here in our gospel reading from John, we encounter the famous Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Jesus is making his way to Galilee, and he has to pass through Samaria. And there in this town, Sikar, he meets with this woman at the well. She is defined by her thirst in a way. She has these physical needs that she has to provide for. She goes to the well for her tangible needs, of course. But I think as we move through the story, there's something much deeper going on and at work. There's something deeper at play here. Something more than her physical needs. It says in the, one of the lines, I don't remember exactly which verse. Also, isn't it funny? There are no verses in our readings. I have spent the past three years of my time referring to verses to y'all. And they don't mean anything to you because you don't have verse numbers. Anyway, that's a doesn't have anything to do with anything. My apologies. But this woman comes to the well in the, the, at noon, in the heat of the day. And this could mean a variety of things. One of them, the more, most obvious condition, is that she is, in fact, an outcast. She doesn't want to come early in the morning or late in the evening in the cool of the day when people, crowds, would have gathered around the well to come and retrieve water But she comes in her shame in the middle and the heat of the day, knowing that she'll find no one. Of course, she's wrong. But I think she does this not simply for her shame. I think there's maybe some subterranean desires going on deep in her body and in her heart. She comes maybe as someone who is thirsty for respite. Maybe she's also thirsty in a way for righteousness. Maybe she's also, woman of five husbands, maybe she's also thirsty for mercy. And I think this is why Jesus notes all of this and brings to the fore the simple point that she has, in fact, have had five husbands and currently lives with one who is not her husband. And so in whatever, whatever the case may be, she is absolutely thirsty for water, but she is even more fundamentally thirsty for something true, for something stable, for something unconditional, for some sort of satisfaction and love. And I think it's not just that she longs for these things. See, that's the condition of thirst. It's not just that she wants them. It's that she needs them. And so this physical condition of thirst, you see, it mirrors exactly what our souls need. And Jesus again knows this. Notice his firm but gentle engagement with her. They quickly move beyond sort of plain sense discussions of well water and they jump immediately into this topic of living water or, or true spiritual respite. Again, Jesus names all of these details about her life that no one would ever want known. 
And she responds, she says, sir, I perceive that you are, in fact, a prophet. She's right. And she cuts immediately to the chase. She says, your people worship on this city. My people worship on this mountain. Who, in fact, is the right one? Where, in fact, do I gain real truth and real life? And notice Jesus, again, his gentleness and his conviction. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, soon enough, access to God will not just be for Jew or Samaritan, but for Gentile and all of humankind. He then goes on, he says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Messiah who will be worshipped by Jew and Gentile and Samaritan alike nonetheless emerges from the wellspring of Israel. He seems to suggest that truly satisfying worship, though it will be made available to all, is made in piercing clarity in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it's as if she catches on to some of this. She says, I understand that when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, that he will reveal all things to us. He will show us what's really true. And Jesus plainly announces to her in one of the most profound moments in all of the New Testament, he says, I who speak to you am he. And I think in this moment, there she realizes that there's an answer to her thirst. And he happens to be standing right in front of her. I think in some way she does in fact realize that all of her and all of our longings actually can be met. And in this way, this woman is a figure not just of Samaritans, not just of Gentiles, but of all of us. Here in this woman's presence at a well in the heat of the day is figured all of humanity. So you see, we are all her standing beside a well in some desert named or known or unknown, having to draw from it again and again and again in the heat of the day, wondering when it might run out or who might see us. But you see, it's even more amazing than that. Because this woman at the well, she is not the only one who is dependent and needy. But in some great mystery, it is also Jesus. You see, there's a great Christian thinker, second, third century, named Origen of Alexandria. He was famous for his brilliance and for his linguistic talents. He wrote one of the very first and longest commentaries on the Gospel of John. And about this very passage, he says, It is a doctrine, that is, it's a teaching, it's obvious, that no one receives a divine gift who seeks not for it. He then says, Even the Savior himself is commanded by the Father to ask that the Father might give it freely. In other words, even Jesus Christ depends on God. And it's tempting for us, is it not, to think of Jesus as absolutely independent and self-sufficient. But the tradition and the scriptures seem to suggest that that is simply not true. Jesus, if he is who we consider him to be, absolutely human, is the truly and fundamentally dependent one. He is the one who is completely and entirely dependent on God the Father. He is the one who hands himself over into the living and caring hands of his Father. He is the one 
who turns to God in each and every moment again and again and again for everything that he needs and cares about. And of course, that is exactly what we see most clearly on the cross. Jesus, in accordance with the Father's will, gives himself over to death, utterly dependent. And in the very end of the Gospels, we suddenly see how trustworthy God the Father really is. And I believe we are foolish to discard or to ignore our dependence. If Jesus Christ is the dependent one and he is the one who paves the way forward for our life and health, then we are foolish to discard it. You see, I think that this truth, our radical dependence on God, it has the power, if you will let it, to change your whole life. I think of it like this. I was reading this past week, this famous and meticulous study of Dostoevsky. It's huge. You don't, you know, I'm not recommending it. But it's this remarkable, researched, five-volume work on the life of Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist. It's truly magisterial. But in those hundreds and hundreds of pages, Frank, the author, argues that there is basically one critical moment in all of, of Dostoevsky's life that basically changes his life forever. He details how, as a, as a young man, Dostoevsky uh, joined this group of revolutionary intellectuals, sort of common in Russia at the age, called the Petrachevsky Circle. And as they began to plot and incite this, um, this peasant rebellion, they eventually they got caught. The Tsar found out about it. But in this sort of curious effort to make both an example of them and also to display his wonderful mercy, the Tsar basically stages this mock execution. And so he has all of the revolutionaries lined up blindfolded with this firing squad standing at the ready. But then at the very last minute, somewhere between ready, aim, and fire, he has this messenger come bounding into the scene with this official statement of reprieve and mercy. And so there in Dostoevsky is not executed, but actually spends the next 10 years of his life in Siberia. But in the biography, Frank argues that somewhere in that five to 10 minute period, on December 22nd in 1849, Dostoevsky fundamentally changes. Somewhere in that moment when he's standing in front of a firing squad in the snow, considering all of what his life is and has been, he changes. And in the aftermath of that event, he basically goes from being this radical utopian socialist to this kind of committed traditional Christian orthodox. But my, my point here is, you realize, we're all of us standing in front of a firing squad in the way. You know this about your life. Each and every day is totally in the hands of God. As much as we think that we are in control, we have no idea what will happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or next month. And so while this condition of our lives, this radical dependence, is stark, certainly, you see, it can also give you incredible freedom 
and grace. Especially when you look to Jesus Christ. Because remember again, Jesus is the absolutely dependent one. He's the one who turns to God for every single need and desire. He is the one, in fact, who stands with incredible resolve in front of a firing squad, even though he knows they will pull the trigger. And it's because he also knows the full character and the power and the love of God the Father. He knows that God is the one who brings water from the rock. He knows that God is the one who brings life out of death. He knows that God is the one who pours streams of water into the desert. And he is the one who satisfies widows and sinners and outcasts, the thirsty of the world. And he is the one who can satisfy you. I find it Incredible that the book of Isaiah prophesies all of this. It says in chapter 44, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon all of your offspring and bless your descendants. And then at the very end of the scriptures, it's satisfied. Revelation says, the spirit and the bride announce, present tense, announce, come. They say, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without money and without price. And so this Lent, I encourage all of you, depend on God and use your thirst in each and every day to turn to the one who can satisfy all of your needs. Use your thirst to see God's goodness, for he is the only one who can slake what you desire the most. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.